Hello, friends, and welcome to the Sacred Tension Podcast. As you can probably tell, I am not your regular host, Stephen Bradford Long. You are not hearing his silky baritone. You're hearing my reedy, whiny tenor. I am someone else altogether. In the immortal words of Admiral Stockdale, who am I and why am I here? My name is Jonathan Rausch. Today, I am your special guest host for a special guest episode of the podcast. I'm a friend of Stephen's and a multi-time podcast guest. I'm a writer, journalist, and policy wonk. I work at the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C., where I'm a senior fellow in governance studies. I write articles and books, of which the most recent is The Constitution of Knowledge, the Defense of Truth, which is the book that got me on this podcast and introduced me to Stephen. So why am I here? And who is our surprise mystery guest? More on that in a moment. But first, we have some housekeeping. This show is only possible with your support. And the actual host of this show desperately needs your money to keep his partner and six cats alive. Wait, six cats? Isn't that a little sad? <laughs> um, if you don't become a paid subscriber at sacredtension.substack.com, Stephen Long will be forced to start a gruesome TikTok cooking show where he scrapes roadkill off the highway and cooks it for the viewing pleasure of millions of prepubescent children. I, as a friend of Stephen's, beseech you not to force him to take such extreme measures. Also, I want you to know this is the part that's not scripted, that I recently became a paid subscriber to this show because I love Stephen's honest questing spirit. He's on a journey of discovery involving some of the biggest ideas of our time. And he does that with warmth, humanity, and humility. And I just, I love that feeling of exploration. So I hope you'll join me in supporting the show. Also, I have a total crush on his silky baritone. So, who is our special guest today? None other than Stephen Bradford Long. Yes, we're turning the tables today. Uh, this, was, this was my idea, and let me explain why. So, when I first met Stephen, it was just over a couple of years ago, and he was a discontent progressive. He was in the progressive camp, I thought, but pretty unhappy with the constraints that he was feeling on what he could say, the guests that he could have on the show, and the general sense of oppressive orthodoxy that was hanging in the air. And he was restive about that. And then, so I followed him. And then more recently, after October 6th, he got on the air and he tells his sister in a podcast that he has been radicalized by what he's seen from the left after Hamas invaded Israel and slaughtered and kidnapped civilians. Well, that got my attention. What did he mean by, by radicalized? And then he publishes a remarkable anti-identitarian manifesto. I'll, I'll quote from it. Modern queer culture with its perseverating over identity categories feels like an inversion of ex-gay culture. It is just as obsessed but through the looking glass. So I get in touch with Stephen and I say, 
dude, you are in a different place than you were two years ago. You have completed a journey, in my opinion, to the great American liberal center. And by liberal, I don't mean left progressive in that sense. I mean the traditional ancient liberalism of Locke and Madison and Burke, the people who believe in rule of law and uh, Republican democracy, minority rights, compromise, toleration, humility, and respect for institutions. And so I'm going like, I want to know why this happened. I want to know what it is that you've learned recently that finally tipped you over to this identity change. And I want to know what the effects are going to be on your life. So I said, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to interview you as the guest on your show, Stephen Bradford Long. Welcome to Sacred Tension. <laughs> Thank you so much. I also have to say, when I was writing that script, I was like, what is the most gruesome thing I can get this venerable, respected elder statesman of gay rights to say on my podcast? And I'm very proud that you said all of it. Well done. <laughs> I had to choke back every word. <laughs> it was humiliating. <laughs> Anyway, thank you so much for doing this. This is this is great. Well, so I want to start, if it's okay, I'm going to interview you, and you're going to walk us through this transformation. And I want to start with, where would you say you were two years ago when we met? I guess that was about May or June of, of actually, yeah, 2021, two years ago. Where would That's you right. say you were politically there? then and and where would you say you were socially i would say that i was a very discontent progressive leftist and you know like whenever i take the political tests i always come i always came up in like that tiny percentage of activist leftist or or activist progressive but i was extremely unhappy in that place and i was unhappy with the culture but I was also for for I think for the longest time, I assumed that the problems that I had, that what I was chafing up against were was just personality, immaturity, internet dysfunction. Before we go to dysfunctional personalities, yes, tell me what it was that made you identify with the left to begin with. What did that mean to you ideologically? Yeah, it meant that I called myself a socialist. I like democratic socialists, like technically technically democratic socialist, but you know, socialist in that blurry American way that doesn't really define itself well. And so yes, technically democratic democratic socialist, yeah. Did and, you believe in government control of the means of production? Uh to a degree, yes. Yeah. And you'd you'd have a bigger social safety net and a lot more government spending and and government economic controls. All of that. Yes. One hundred percent. So you're definitely not a free marketer. No. I think that and I was ensconced in leftist enclaves online where, you know, I watched a lot of content creators like the majority report with sam cedar like um michael brooks and contrapoints lots and lots of leftist 
online creators, BreadTube, the the like socialist YouTube community. And so I was just like mainlining that whole world, that whole and, and culture. What would you say? I'm an aggressive interviewer, so yes, get please. used to it. What what <laughs> would you say were the issues that most activated you? The issues that most activated me. I was really into the economics. I I was really into and still am, but just in a different way, providing a, a broader safety net for people so that suffering people and impoverished people, because I live here in Appalachia. And so just watch I mean, even within my neighborhood, just just watching the extraordinary levels of poverty and wanting to fix that. Uh, another thing that really activated me was racism systemic racism and kind of the the anti-racist moment that we all went through in 2020 and before so i was a supporter of black lives matter i was a big supporter of what yasha monk calls the identity synthesis and we can get to that later probably yes we'll we'll definitely come to that so a lot of this for you is economics and race, which are two big touchstones. Mm-hmm. And and what about well let's let's talk about identity now for a minute because obviously you're a member of you're gay, yep. uh, which makes you a member of the LGBTQIAA plus community, so called community, so called as it's sometimes <laughs> called. Um, and how did you relate? to that aspect of leftism? It's a good question. What's so interesting about these questions is that, what, what's so interesting about these questions is how, you know, it's like when you really probe deeply into this stuff, it was mostly just a vibe. It was mostly just a culture that I found myself in that had shared obsessions, that had shared fixations about protecting minorities and seeing oneself as a minority and and embracing minority solidarity but was there a coherent thought behind it i don't actually think so it was the it was the culture i was in and i think so much of it was was shaped by my online engagement if that makes sense yeah, so I think what you're describing is an identity to go back to that word. Yes. Not was, so much Exactly. It was it was much more an identity and a community and an aesthetic than it was a coherent ideology. And would you have told people? Did you tell people you were queer? Did you say did oh, yeah. you identify as LGBT? Did you just say gay? Uh, How would you have referred to yourself in those uh, days? All of the above. And, you know, I feel like I'm, so I'm 35. I feel like I'm at that very specific age where I don't have any necessarily positive or negative valence with the word queer. And so older gay guys, your generation, I think, really dislikes the word queer because it was, you know, what was hurled at gay men when, you know, they were being abused by the football team or whatever. And then there's the 
valorization of the word queer. And I feel like that came slightly, I don't know that. So, so I, I like still today, I don't have a big emotional reaction to the word queer and I will find myself just calling myself queer kind of in a neutral so way to queer. Yeah. Queer just kind of means gay yeah. or yeah. LGBT. Correct. Yeah. For yeah. Me. There's another whole conversation we can have about people, what people, my generation went from hating queer to accepting queer and then back to hating it again for entirely different reasons. The second time. That's fascinating. Because it I began would love to, to hear that. Yeah. It began to associate us with a whole radical political program um, that we did not want to be associated with. But that came later. So I will still kind of in passing thoughtlessly call myself queer, but I don't really imbue it with any political ideology. So let's go back even a bit further and just get some general context about your life. At one point you were a Christian. Correct. um, And then you left Christianity and became, I think, a priest of the Satanic Temple, a minister of the Satanic Temple, and still are as far as I know. Still am, yeah. That identity, I think, has not shifted. And when would you say you began identifying as a member of the left, the ideology, the community, or both? I would say around 2017, 2018. Actually, actually, that's that's important because I feel like it was very much in reaction to Trump. And it's almost like during those years the middle evacuated for a bit, at least in the cultures that I found myself in. And so suddenly there was this polarizing moment and everyone had to go to the fringes, not just left of center, but also right of center. You know, conservative friends seemed to have been pushed even further right. And people like me, left of center, seemed to have been pushed even further left. Um. So before that, would you have described yourself as apolitical or kind of center left or what? Apolitical. I don't think I thought about it that much. My my head was in theology. It was in culture. It was in religion, not necessarily politics. So you were. That's an interesting story. So I think I I think I get it. You were you were interested in culture. You were probably on the left side of the spectrum. If someone had to nail you down, but that's not what you were thinking about every day. Mm-hmm. Along comes Trump and the deep divisions that he sows, and people have to line up and take sides because he's undermining liberal democracy. And what was it about the left that attracted you? There were also people around who were not of the left, who were of the center right to center left, who had not been friends in the past. These are people like, I don't know, Bill Crystal on the one hand, or Jennifer Rubin on the other who discovered suddenly that they had in common that they were not of the extreme right or extreme left, and that although they disagreed on the issues, they did agree that what Donald Trump stood for was a dagger to the heart of liberal democracy. So this was this kind of, this is my group, this is my tribe. Why did you not identify with that tribe? Maybe you just never heard about it. I don't think I... I saw it, and I think the people that I did see, they all seemed to be going kind of crazy. So I mean people like the intellectual dark web crowd. And I was a big fan. That's for those who don't know, that's like, would Sam Harris be part of that? Yes, Sam Harris. Jordan Peterson. Sam Harris, Jordan Peterson, and 
yeah, Sam, let's see here. Michael Shermer, Barry Weiss. Well, Barry Weiss was the one who wrote the original article featuring them. The Weinstein Brothers. I was a fan of the Weinstein Brothers. But I was a fan of all these guys. I was a fan of all these people in an apolitical sense. I liked the conversations that they had. I thought that their guests were super cool. Like I loved listening to Joe Rogan because he would, you know, spend four hours talking about chimps and psychedelics. And I was into that. And but I saw that crowd seemed to go a bit crazy for a minute And I think a big moment for me was when Sam Harris had Charles Murray on. That would have been in 2017. Yeah, I remember that show. Yeah. And and of course, that was like a historic moment in Internet lore. And that to me at the time was just so beyond the pale. It was just such a huge that was like such a hard line that in my view, should not have been crossed. For people who don't know, Charles Murray, author of The Bell Curve, most, uh, maybe one of the most controversial books of the past several decades in in recent memory. It, Sam, it involves race and IQ. And it, and it involves and, race and, and IQ. We won't, we won't go into that rabbit hole. It's a whole different conversation. Yes, but for we're sure. going to put a bookmark in the name Charles Murray and circle back to that Sure. When we get up to the modern era and how your views of of that world may have changed. So you were driven, you felt driven away yeah. from from the sort of people in the in the kind of in this, I don't like the term intellectual dark. Neither, neither do I. It's people, so stupid. <laughs> yeah. They're they're just kind of, you know, they're kind of classical liberals of the center left and center right. I don't know what Jordan Peterson is. I actually think he's a very smart, interesting guy, but also a very weird guy. But Sam Harris, you know, Sam Harris and Barry Weiss are not weird. But yeah, so they're dissidents, but you discover that they are dissidents who you don't feel comfortable with because they're giving airtime to some views that really strike you as reprehensible. And what is it about the left, per se, the real left, you know, the, the, the angry left, the radical left? Uh, the LGBTQIAA plus left that attracts you at that moment. They were mad about the same things that I was mad about. They're angry. They're angry. And and they I hit, was they hit the right emotional yes, valence. Yes, they hit the right emotional valence. And and I think that there's a hidden story here, which is social media. I was spending so much time in these online spaces, but it was it was all aesthetic. It was all vibes. It was there wasn't much depth to it, intellectual depth for me. And I feel like social media gave me a tailor-made false personality. And we can get to this. I'm sure we'll, we'll get to this in a, in a moment, but it wasn't until maybe 2020, 2021, where I started to step back from social media, actually. And I started to realize that I had my own thoughts and I had my own concerns and I had my own personality. Yeah, this is all pretty classic so far. It's a man who first gets politicized after being, you know, kind of not that interested in politics and shops around and gets turned off by the first place he goes and then finds emotional comfort and expressive kind of an expressive valence that he really needs on the left has probably not really thought through what the left is all about. That's right. May not have been exposed in college to 
what Yasha Monk describes as sort of the three pillars of the identity synthesis, which is it's like postmodernism, postcolonialism, and critical race theory. I'm guessing you were not steeped in those things. No, not at all. I was exposed to the pop culture YouTube version of those things, but the underlying philosophy, Kimberly Crenshaw and and Derek Bell and all of that, I had no fucking clue about any of that. Yeah. Yeah. So what you're seeing is you're out there on social media and you're seeing this kind of cool stuff, which hits these notes of outrage and anger and reform and maybe revolution. And it's mm -hmm. it's kind of hip and it's kind of exciting. And you know that you harmonize generally with its kind of socialist take on life. But you haven't like you're not an ideologue, really, at that point. You, not at it all. sounds like you've never been a true ideologue. You've never so, been someone who's going to go to the ramparts for critical social justice and talk about, I don't know, Karl Marx and um, uh, and, you know, other ideologues of of that. Yeah. Of that vintage. And people can hear a lot of this in older episodes of Sacred Tension as well, where a lot of the guests that I had on were you know intersectional uh scholar types and i i think what i was and what i continue to be is just a like deeply curious person who doesn't have a strong sense of taboo you know i don't have well mm, that's not true charles charles murray hit my taboo uh chord he he hit that feeling of taboo but i would say i i'm curious and so I pursued a lot of those conversations with people in this realm. And I echoed, I, I parroted a lot of what they said. But I don't think I had a terribly coherent ideology. Yeah, I wasn't an ideologue. So I think this describes a lot of people on, on the left and also a lot of people on the right who are they're they're not the vanguard. They haven't read the the sacred texts. Um, who, who's the famous left man? This the name just went out of my head. Famous famous left wing theorist who everyone cites all the time. Um, it'll come back to me. But so you're not one of those people. But you are one of this sort of larger group who's attracted to the vibe of the left. Yeah, it was all and vibes. It gives you a sense gives you a sense of identity and a sense of cause and a sense of being on the right side of history. Yes. But you're never entirely there. By the time I meet you in 2021, you're already pretty restless. So so now let's go, I guess, to, was it the personalities? You mentioned the word dysfunction. Or was that what was sort of starting to be the sand in your, in your shoe? Yes. And that was there from the very beginning. Like, I remember starting around 2014 or 2015, the internet changed at least my internet changed what once felt kind of more warm and more interesting just turned kind of savage and so maybe it was me that changed maybe it was just my specific quote i don't know what happened there but something shifted for me and so that 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 feeling of savagery has actually always been there i was always unhappy with it but it it be, it became more and more and more intolerable to me because you were seeing more of it or because it was wearing you down it was wearing me both. down 
yeah, it was wearing me down. And I felt like it, it made it made me a bad writer because I was constantly having to caveat every time I would mention a even semi controversial writer. I would have to, you know, go on a side quest into their sordid history and how I denounce it. I would have to, you know, pad everything with don't hurt me signs like now I understand that how you know how this might sound. I it made me a bad writer because I was so afraid of the wrath of my colleagues. So who is setting these rules? Like where were you taking dictation from about what you could and couldn't say? There there was no one setting the rules. It was an ambient it, it was an ambient discomfort. Because you watch so, you 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 get kicked once, you know. So so you say something once and I'm a very conflict averse person. I would literally rather chew off my own limb than than have a conflict. I am a you know, pathologically polite and nice person. And so you you do something out of the best of intentions once and then it and then you get kicked really hard on social media and you don't want to get kicked and again. then you don't want to get kicked again did you get kicked really hard on social media oh yeah i got kicked mega hard <laughs> can you give us an example so i wrote an article this was in i want to say 2016 or 2017 and this was still when I was writing quite a bit about LGBT stuff. And something that I had observed and I felt like not enough people appreciated is that people in the conservative realm, specifically religious, theologically conservative Christians, they often experience their own unique type of pain in regards to the LGBT problem, because very often their heart wants to love and support and affirm because they're not bad people. They're not ogres. I mean, they're not monsters. These are good people who see the humanity of LGBT people, but feel like they are held back from fully embracing, say, gay marriage because of a theological framework that they're working within. And that cognitive dissonance is painful. And I think it is worthwhile for me as a gay person to have some empathy for that because I know what it's like to have cognitive. I know what it's like to have cognitive dissonance. I know how painful it is. So I wrote this article and LGBT people just completely slammed me because they saw me as a traitor and siding with the oppressor and siding with the people who are absolutely toxic, the abusers. And in my mind, I was extending the logic of compassion and inclusion. To me, that so, means, yes, go on. So they were not even necessarily disagreeing with you they were not reaching that point they were saying you're not entitled to to write about these people in a respectful way is that it it was both i think they were disagreeing with me and they were appalled that i even wrote it they were appalled that i wrote the piece and they i think on a fundamental level they disagreed 
with the empathy that I was trying to extend to who would otherwise be our ideological enemies. Okay, so there are two statements there, and I'm going to make a guess, and you tell me if, if I'm right, okay. that if what they had said is some version of, we respectfully disagree, we think you're misreading the motives of these folks, you would have been happy to have a conversation about that and maybe yes. adjust your views. Absolutely. But the, the second element of this, which is shut the fuck up. Yes. You shouldn't be writing that. You're helping the other side. You're hurting us. You're marginalizing and hating on us and maybe saying we don't have a right to exist is what you're doing here. That's Is that the part that stung most? And am I overstating what they were telling you? That is the part that stung most because it's it's when the moral opprobrium comes from your own people people who are supposed to be your allies and then suddenly they say you are you know you're wiping away the tears of homophobes is the phrase that stands out to me wiping away the tears of homophobes that is what hurt what were the consequences of that hurt in terms of your own practices and in terms of your standing in the community that you had chosen i think i that's a good question. I think I just became way more careful, and I don't mean careful in a responsible way. Every writer should be thoughtful and careful. I I became more careful in a self-censorious way. So you began self-policing? Absolutely. In a way that you had not before, and that was, sounds like almost physically uncomfortable for you. Yes, 100%. Because, I mean, like I said, I, I have like this dual nature of having, of, of I think being innately curious and, and kind of wanting to trespass boundaries and being the most pathologically agreeable person <laughs> ever. And that's not a, that's not a pleasant combination. And so I feel like I, I fell back on the pathological agreeableness. So you found yourself feeling unable to explore the podcast guests that you might want to, the Substack topics that you might want to. And when you did try to explore them, you would surround yourself with hedges and firewalls to make sure to the best of your ability that you wouldn't be canceled, even though you also knew full well that no matter what you say or how much you apologize, if you're going to get canceled, you'll get canceled. Oh, yeah. A, a great wall of China of caveats. And to the point where like half the article would be caveats. I mean, it was just it was bad writing. <laughs> caveats make for very bad writing. Yeah. And yeah. Especially jargon filled caveats. And so, okay, so you find yourself, I guess we're now probably 2019 or 20 or so. That's right. Because I meet you in 2021, and you're living in a defensive crouch and in kind of what you feel like is emotionally, intellectually, a small box. You feel like you can't really stretch out. So around that time, I come on your show, and we talk about my book, and a, a bunch of my book is about what's colloquially known as cancel culture. But what I talk about in the book is how that's a form of mind control. Why what's going on here is a very sophisticated form of propaganda that's well understood. Um, it controls the intellectual environment by allowing a small group of people to create the appearance of a false consensus by punishing those who speak out. And this is how a 
a regime like you know the Soviet Union can create a false narrative and millions and millions of people, while not quite believing it, won't dare to disbelieve it. This is so this is a tactic of cultural and political domination, and people hate it. They absolutely hate being in these environments. And you hated it, and you understood that something was wrong. It sounded like when we met, you weren't sure what was wrong, except that you knew you were unhappy because you told me that there were guests that you would love to have on your show that you were afraid to ask. Yes. And you even named some. Do you recall some of those people? Yes. I've had some of them on, actually. Helen Lewis was one, I think, and I have, I've had her on. Yes, she was on um, your list. Jordan Peterson, however, he's so fucking gargantuan that he <laughs> that'll probably never happen. But, you know, people who people who I think are weird or off kilter in some way, but who would just make a fascinating conversation partner, people who I, I would want to sit down and hear their thoughts on things. I would conversations that I would enjoy and feeling like those conversations are. And, and oh, oh, actually, I did try to have one of these people on. This was before. This was in 2020. A guy named Benjamin Boyce, who I have actually since come to to disagree with his stuff even more. But I tried to have a conversation like this, you know, with someone who is maybe a you know a bit on the a bit on the edge, and and trying to have that conversation responsibly, but also have an interesting conversation where people could possibly learn something. After that that podcast aired one of my superiors in a in an organization that I work in contacted me. I was like, hey, I got a complaint. Someone was complaining to me about you and about that show because your guest misgendered someone and, you know, acknowledged them as trans. And then I think just accidentally or, you know, I, I'm not in this person's head, so I don't know what motivated him. But uh, misgendered someone, and this infuriated people. And because my head was, you know, interviewing is like the ultimate in multitasking. You're thinking, will the audience find this boring? What is the next topic? You're listening to the guest trying to, you know, pick out the interesting stuff. It is the ultimate in multitasking. You're looking at the clock, you know, like you're you're doing all of this cognitive work. And I just missed it. I just did not catch that he misgendered someone. And this so infuriated a portion of my audience and a superior. So, and they didn't come to me. They went to someone who I answer to. And then this person who I have great love and respect for, he felt obligated to talk to me about this. And it was like, well, fuck, I'm not going to do that again. <laughs> <laughs> because it it came from something that I could not have anticipated. I wasn't I would have expected that it came from, you know, that the outrage would have, you know, come from the views that he espoused. It came from him probably accidentally misgendering someone and me not catching it. The lesson there was you can't predict what's going to get get you in trouble. You know, it's like you do your absolute best to do a responsible interview with someone, have all your ducks in a row, have the firewall of caveats in place, and still <laughs> something happens. So some of this is not about ideology or the left. Some of this is just about 
the trials and tribulations of having a media program and at any given moment, oh, yeah. any kind of thing could happen. So we're all in that world to some extent. It's why I'm a writer though, because uh, I can always show stuff to people before I publish it. Oh, for real. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's why it's why God made editors. Um, okay. But so that said, what you're describing is someone who feels very constrained and even worse, does not know where the boundaries are. And I'm sure you're acquainted with the famous experiments that were done on dogs in the 50s, back when you could do these experiments on dogs, where they would they would shock dogs, but they do it in two ways. One was predictable shocks. You know, if they walked across a certain line, they would get a shock, and they would very quickly learn not to walk across that line, and they were fine. The other kind of shock would be random, so that they could never figure out what to do or not do to avoid getting shocked, and that very quickly turned them into nervous wrecks. And it sounds like you're in that second situation. You'd, you, you're in this world now where you never know where the dart's going to come from. And so you're just kind of hunkered down and carrying on and hoping for the best. And that's where you are about when I meet you. So that's 2021. That's a little, little over two years ago. So narrate, if you will, what happens between then when you're kind of you're angsty, you're helpless. I wind up using you in, in the lead to an article I write about cancel culture, making the point that the way this works is it it inculcates neurotic self-policing because you never know where the boundaries are. And that's the whole point. So you're an example of that kind of learned helplessness at that point. And then sometime recently, you cross over to a different place, right? You become openly defiant. You've Something about you has had it, something snaps, what happened? Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot in terms of what happened, trying trying to kind of cohere the narrative of what happened. I think I was at the point where I I would rather stop podcasting and stop writing and just go to a mountainside and raise chickens if I'm not going to have the conversations that I want to have. I was so bored. I was so exhausted of having safe conversations. I I fucking hated it. And I was I was truly at the point where I was thinking about, well, maybe it's just time to to put this all in the drawer and I can go do something else. And I didn't want to do that. So I decided that I just needed to not care. I will always try to be responsible and kind and open to criticism. I'm not I'm not an asshole. What I think what draws people to my work is that I I'm I'm a warm person. I I think that's one of the things that people really like about my work. That that's not going to change. I'm not going to be a jerk about it. But it really was just a either I quit or I or I decide to do what I want to do. I ended up putting some boundaries in place with specific communities, with with specific groups of people where I felt like I couldn't say the things and explore the things that I wanted to explore. And moving to Substack was part of that. So so moving to Substack was very deliberate, which which happened in June or May, May or June. And I was like, I'm going to, you know, really deliberately make this a rebrand as kind of a psychological reset for me 
so that on Substack, I can actually do the kind of writing that I want to do. And I'm putting in hard boundaries with certain groups of people. And what what do hard boundaries look like? It looks like choosing my friends well and not showing my face in places where among people I don't respect. And so it was it was a it was a very conscious pivot and rebrand. And and Substack gives you more does it give you more editorial independence? Or are you less subject to I, being and or canceled on Substack? I none of the I think it's just all psychological. I I think it's, it's just, just being a starting over. It's just it was just a starting over. And, and okay. so, yeah. So what you're describing so far is repositioning yourself socially so that you can feel independent of a group which you had come to realize we're trying to control you and to a large extent succeeding. Yes. Oh, uh, another another part. So sorry. Uh, another part of this was was finding close friends who I knew had my back and who, you know, even if they even if they disagree with me, even if they're like, Stephen, I think you're fucking nuts being like, I respect you. I respect you intellectually. I will treat you as an adult, as a human, as a friend. And it, so finding having people in my life. You're one of them. Lucian Greaves is one of them from TST. And and friends in my personal life who I know have my back and who can converse graciously and winsomely and who I know aren't going to pillory me. And just having having a group of friends who are who I actually trust has I think gone a long way. I've interviewed bunches of people who've been through varieties of cancellation experiences and what they describe as the very worst thing true trauma uh, can induce thoughts of suicide one person actually did kill himself jesus is the sense of complete isolation that suddenly everyone who you thought was on your side is against you they're not returning your emails once in a while someone will say hey steven um i quietly support you but i'm not going to say anything so you become radioactive and this causes complete despair. This is social death. This is what we fear the most as humans, more than physical death. That's why we go to war and fight, uh, so as not to face this. And anyone who's been through canceling and come out the other side will say that one of the ultimate benefits of the experience is you find out who your friends are and you develop friendships that are steadier yes, and based on deeper values. And that people say, they would never go through it again because it's so traumatic mm-hmm. emotionally. But having been through it, there's this upside of resituating yourself um, and knowing where people really are. Uh, that also, by the way, you hear that on the right from conservatives who broke with Trump and got um, censured by their political party and thrown out of office and ridiculed on Fox News. And had to fall back on a much smaller community of people who could say, you know what, I've got your back, especially if they'll do it publicly. So let me just say for the record that I'm I'm proud to be a friend of yours and mischievously proud to have at a, at a couple of moments sort of prodded you in the direction of, of tell them to go fuck themselves. Okay, so you were like the Gandalf figure appearing on Bilbo's doorstep being like, you need to do this. Um, you were, I don't know how much of this would have happened without 
without your influence. Well, it, it, it would have. You were there, but but part of the role that that I played for you, and that you can now play for other people in this situation, and this is so important, is to make help people understand that when you're in the situation that you were in of constantly fearing social blowback being canceled, you're in a prison to which you hold the key. You can let yourself out by deciding, you know what? I don't really have to care that much about what these people think. In fact, if I don't care about what these people think, if I liberate myself from their control, they lose their power. It's not that I lose mine. Yeah. Now, of course, some people will lose audiences and money in some cases, but that's usually because they're assholes. Yeah. And you're not an asshole. So I think kind of the role I partly played is just saying, hey, you know what? You don't need to be as afraid of these people as they want you to be. And in fact, you have a lot more strength than they do. And um, you you will be telling that to other people going forward, and and they will follow you. So now I want to move to the patently ideological element. So far, we've been talking about the social world you were in and how it enforced conformity. What happened on October 6th, ideologically, that drove you to use the term radicalized? I think not in the sense of becoming a political ra radical, but in, in, in some sense, something very dramatic happened to you a month ago. What was it? Yeah. So... For people under a rock, by the way, October 7th was when Hamas uh, attacked Israel and just committed some of the most astonishing and hideous acts of inhumanity on a huge scale that I think a lot of us have seen uh, recently. Apparently, the stories of beheading babies have been confirmed. now verified, confirmed. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I think I said October 6th. Um, the date is October seventh. That's right. That's right. Uh, so, yeah. okay. Some for some for some background. So, my partner is converted to Judaism this year, and a, a full full conversion. You know the and and the Jews don't make it easy to convert. But he <laughs> he no, we don't want you. Yes, exactly. But but you do though. You play hard to get. The side effect of this is that. I am now a surprise member of a synagogue, which is something that no one had in their bingo card <laughs> for my life because, you know, Jews are so fucking horny for families that, you know, I'm I'm now a, a member of a synagogue because I'm partnered with John. So I now completely unexpected as as John's goy toy have <laughs> have have a, 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 a admittedly distant and very new and very fresh connection to a religious community as an outsider but but still those bonds of empathy have been established and so to support John I've been learning a lot about Judaism I've been you know going to synagogue with him and I'm planning on taking a course on on secular Judaism, just just you know to to have a bit of to have kind of a a household that has a shared experience, and that's that's really important to John. So I want to do that. So that's the backdrop against which this happened in my own life, and 
Also, after October 7th, just a day or two afterwards, John's synagogue received really horrific, incredible threats of violence, which resulted in the synagogue going into shutdown. The rabbi specifically received direct threats of violence, and the FBI had to get involved. Wow. Can you share with us what city or region this would have been? Uh, I'll just say Western North Carolina. I don't want to give yeah, of course. more more details than that. Synagogues now routinely have armed guards. They've had for a long time, but now it's now it's even worse. They have panic buttons on the bima, so that if there's a shooter, uh, the the button goes straight to the police. This is the world we live in. It it's horrific. <laughs> a friend of mine. My best friend, Dante, we went for a walk the other day and he was like, man, you and John just have the worst luck with religions, (laughs) which is true. Okay, so this is the backdrop against which I see leftists, not just, not just leftists from organizations in New York, but Leftists within my own circles. People you know personally. People I know personally. Or acquaintances. And people who I have known for years. Not just do hand-wringing apologism for Hamas and for these unspeakable acts of atrocity, but outright celebrating it. Saying that Hamas are freedom fighters, that they broke out of the open-air prison, that it was a resistance. I think that I had calibrated leftist dysfunction to, like, a certain tax bracket socially (laughs) of bad, you know, to a certain, like, bracket of bad, where it's like, you know, it's bad, self-censorship. It's bad. People getting fired over stupid shit. Super bad. We should be opposed to that. This felt on just a whole other level to me. This felt, this broke the glass ceiling of, of whatever badness I felt, I, I thought my fellow lefties were capable of. And out of the woodwork, came all of these people defending Hamas and specifically using the language of Derek Bell and specifically using the language of of colonialism and all of these ideas to pretend that Hamas is anything other than a death cult and that Israel, no matter how much we might criticize their actions in the West Bank, no matter how much we may criticize their right-wing government, should not have the right to exist. That it should, that from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, meaning Israel itself should be abolished. So I have a couple questions about this. Yeah. But first, I want to honor what you say, because it's so important and it's so true. Um, Welcome to Judaism. The the core of Jude, I am, as you know, uh, a devout atheist. I have been since childhood. I tried to believe in God. It, it didn't work. But that makes me lo- no less a Jew 
the the greatest shame I've ever felt was 20 years ago, I did a radio show about gay marriage and out of the blue, before I could think about it, the talk show host asked if I'm religious. And I said, no, because I was thinking, you know, well, I'm secular. And I suddenly felt this wave of shame that, that I experienced as a, a tingle of heat running through my body. I know I turned red because I had disavowed my Jewishness. Um, and for Jews who are born into the faith, what you're born into is a genetic understanding that the world will never be safe for us, that anti-Semitism is the most successful viral meme in all of human history. Um, and so welcome to, to this world that um, is not an easy place to be. And I, um, it, it speaks of your love for John that you're willing to take on this this burden. We Jews experience being chosen as being chosen for a burden, not a benefit. You know that. Um, and I also honor the extreme importance of the moral distinction you're drawing. Um, you can be for decolonization without being for slaughtering old women and children and non-combatants and calling your parents and celebrating that you just killed 10 Jewish civilians with your own gun. With your own hand. Um, with your own hand. With your own hand, and yeah. Your son, and, and he said in that phone call, your son is a hero. I killed 10 Jews with my own hands. Go on to Snapchat or which, uh, whatever app, see the pictures of what I have done. Yeah. Yes. And, and this is, of course, indefensible. It is also true that what's happening in Gaza right now is a terrible, terrible thing. And then each of those deaths, Palestinian and IDF, is a terrible tragedy. But we need to remember that every single one of those people would be alive right now and well if Hamas had not chosen to invade Israel and slaughter 1,300 Israelis. So yes. let's just keep that morally straight. So all of that I want to honor. But now I want to ask you a couple of things. What you're describing now is different from the social transition that you had made previously to being in a world where you did not feel you had to be as fearful. But now you've made a political transition. And here's what I want to know. So unlike so many people, I was shocked by what we saw from the American left in terms of its reaction to Hamas. You know, what did you think decol decolonization would be? What do you what did you think decolonization would look like? But I was not the least bit surprised. My reaction is, where have you been the last 30 years or the last hundred years? If there's <laughs> one thing we know about the extreme left, not the center left, not the you know, kind of conventional liberal left. Uh, but if there's one thing we know about them since the time of Marxism, Leninism, it's that they view human beings as a means to an end. Communism killed, what, 50 million, 100 million people? No one knows how many tens of million people it killed because it viewed humans as a means to an end. We've also known for 30 years that decolonization meant what they now say it means. And if you're in gay world, you know that for years we've had issues with gay Jewish groups being thrown out of pride because Gay leftist groups say you're a bunch of colonialists. Zionism is racism and you can't march with us. There's nothing new about left-wing anti-Semitism. We've been seeing it for years. So what I want to know is 
Why were you surprised? What was it that you had missed about the left-wing people that you were associated with who seemed like good and decent people? I think I have truly been this out of touch. I That's the only... I mean, that is the only explanation. It, someone... So one, one, my sister pushed me on this. You heard her push me on this. Like she was like, "I'm not surprised. Why are you surprised?" I mean, and and the answer is, I think I have truly been this naive. I really have. I think the only explanation is that I just didn't connect the dots. I think I have truly been this naive, and I mean, jokes on me. Silly me, because I had really relegated it. Also, I didn't. I don't think I wanted to believe the worst of it. I, uh. I, I don't think I wanted to. I think I wanted to relegate, like I said, the badness of the far left to a to a particular tax bracket of social badness, because I think that was manageable for me, as horrific as you know, as as awful and and. Uh, unlivable as it is, defending, you know, firing a, a professor, Carol Hooven, you know, going through all her travails at Harvard because she wrote, she's a lecturer on, tes- lecturer on testosterone. That's bad, but is, it an, is an utterly different category from what I was seeing among my friends. So there, it was this, it was truly a, a oh, oh, also, I think it was important that I read Yasha Monk's book, The Identity Trap, literally like just before, and I interviewed him um, literally just before this happened. And I, and so I think, and because that book is, is so dispassionate, so polite, and so non-culture war, as it, it, it it was able to land for me in ways that I think other books on the subject haven't. It was helpful for me to talk to Yasha Monk and read his book at the time I did because it laid the groundwork for what I was seeing two weeks later when Hamas killed over a thousand Jews and the defenses that came out. It it Got laid it. the so groundwork. You now- yes. You now had a framework that allowed you to recognize what you were seeing. Yes. And it was absolutely hideous in a in a way that I don't think I was ever willing to see before. And I think I have just been that out of touch from I, I think I have been that clueless. Yeah. Do you think that's true of a lot of people on the left that like you, they were kind of there for the vibes? Yes. Or do you feel like the ideology, the hardcore stuff is characteristic. I've been really surprised by the people who, by the people in my life who have been like, this is too far, to who, as Helen Lewis say, um, are not failing the Hamas test. You know, the leftists who aren't failing the Hamas test, who might otherwise sign off on all the other things. So I, I don't know really what's going on in people's minds. But I do think that this is a wake-up call for a huge number of leftists. You, you know, I've been reading all these articles about the DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America, and like the, 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 the 
uh, schisms that are happening right now there because one part of the DSA are are uh, defending Hamas and then the other part is saying, no, this is too far. You have gone too far for me. And so I, I don't entirely know what the intellectual and social dynamics are there, but I do think that a lot of people were as surprised as I was. Yeah, uh, one way my reaction differed from many's many people's is that as as corrupt and immoral as the anti-colonialist left reaction has been, it's served a valuable purpose of revealing to people what apparently, to my surprise, they didn't know because apparently they either hadn't been paying attention or the issue hadn't been forced. Well, so where does that leave you with this group of friends who you have now publicly denounced? <laughs> well, they haven't talked to me. <laughs> um, and, you know, I wrote a, an article, you read it. Um, I was just so appalled that I said this is moral rot at its finest and at its most evident. And that article did exactly what I knew it would do, which is bring leftists out of the woodwork within my own communities defending Hamas. I, I knew that that is exactly what would happen. And I pushed them. I was like, so do you think Israel should exist? And inevitably the answer was no. Zionism is racism. And that the, this entire country should not exist. That is genocidal. That is a that is a genocidal claim, even if they don't think. Yes, and through it, and somewhat ironic coming from a group of people whose standard answer, um, when they hear something they don't like on a college campus, like a criticism of affirmative action or misgendering, is you're denying my right to exist. Absolutely. So, um, I I feel you know I feel fairly liberated, honestly, because uh, the, here's the other thing that I've been thinking about. People pay me to read my opinion. So I might as well share it. That's my job. <laughs> people people pay me to read what I think and to hear what I think on this podcast. So I'm I'm just going to do that. And and that demands maturity from my audience and if people can't handle that then I'm sorry, go back to Twitter, I guess. So yeah, that that's basically where I am. I feel fairly liberated. I haven't heard from anyone who obviously thinks I'm I'm wrong and apparently, you know, a Zionist shill or whatever, the Zionist goy toy. So I haven't heard from them, but I have no problem now saying what I think on this subject because the the moral confusion is just so clear to me. It is so this is one of those areas where it's like there's zero ambiguity. And if I fail this test, if I fail this test of condemning Hamas at least and, and not seeing Hamas as freedom fighters and not seeing the immorality of those who and, and denouncing the immorality of those who celebrate Hamas, then I have to do some introspection if I fail that test. So so it's one of those things where it's like the moral clarity lends some courage. Yeah, this is a little like coming out of the closet if you're gay. At some point, you just know. Yes. It's not not necessarily a conscious thinking through. You just realize which side of the line you, you're on. 
and and that can have earth-shaking personality and social consequences. It did for me back in 1985 when I came out, which was a very different world. But you can't look back because you, at that point, you realize that that you have no choice. So if I'm writing the intellectual biography of Stephen Bradford Long, I see a two-step in the last month. Tell me if I'm wrong about this. The first is the immediate provocation, the horror of seeing the anti-colonialist line used to justify uh, genocidal terrorist attacks. But then you write this, this article, which goes further. This article is more broad and more ideological, and it embraces the Yasha Monk and, may I say, Jonathan Rausch and Yuval Levin and, and Pete Weiner and Frank Fukuyama and Jonathan Haidt and on and on and on view of the world which says that the whole identity politics construct of the world in which you are your group and certain groups are oppressed and thus privileged um or morally privileged um and other groups are oppressors and thus to be condemned and this is life forever and ever and so on you announce you've had it with that in no uncertain terms yes um and that's there's nothing specifically about the reaction to the Hamas attack, which would have led you to take this further step of what I see as embracing liberal values. So what happened there? Yasha's book, I guess, is part of it. Yasha's book is a big part of it. Uh, again, I think I just needed to hear it from someone like him because I was playing with the ideas, but I was I was kind of uncertain. But Yasha Monk's book really clarified it for me he's center left by the way for folks who don't I, know yes he's he's uh he's fantastic and he has a, a hot german accent that people should all listen to on the podcast uh, <laughs> um what happened it was the course of again this didn't it didn't happen overnight i mean it was a gradual process I think what happened was I would I was having conversations with people and realizing values that I hold are that I already hold are actually very different from the values that other people a lot of other people in the LGBT world hold. I believe and I think I've always believed this, actually. I think this was maybe not consistently, maybe not consciously, but I think I've always believed this. I think I have always believed that liberation means having the freedom to be a person. That's what it means. It's oppression that puts us into boxes. It is oppression that tells us that we have to act and be in a particular way that we are confined to labels. It is oppression's obsession over insignificant parts of who we are that groups us in the first place. And so to me, the point of gay rights was always to finally be able to get on with my work, to finally be able to move on and just enjoy my life. And and enjoy my individuality and my humanity and the pursuit of happiness however I saw fit. That was always the point. It was always to like take your ball and go home. Over the past year, I've had conversations with people that just revealed to me that that is very much not the case 
in large swaths of LGBT culture. And I and you know, I've been greeted with arguments like um you're abandoning the LGBT community by doing this because in order to exist in solid, you know, in order to defend the rights of minorities, this is you you have to do this. And I I just on a fundamental level I don't buy it. I think that we can defend the rights of marginalized people while rejecting identitarianism. There is zero conflict there. There is zero dissonance there. And so it was this growing dissatisfaction and it just it 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 built into that article that I wrote that was published on Persuasion and on my own Substack. So if I'm writing your psychobiography, I'm going to say something like you had never really been in your heart on board with the politicized identitarian perspective in which you're not just a homosexual person who happens to be homosexual. You're LGBTQIAA+. You buy into a whole suite of ideological and definitional dogmas. Um, you were never comfortable with that, but you weren't in a place to challenge it until you repositioned your substack to get some independence. That's right. Um, knowing that you were seeking independence, but not necessarily at that point knowing independence for what? where you were going next. And then providentially, Yasha Monk and his book come along and the light bulb goes on about the Kool-Aid that you've been drinking and the alternative. Yes. In a way that's very appealingly put from a center-left point of view, not a right-wing point of view. Yasha is not dark web. No, not at all. And then, and then comes the trigger event. Hamas, um, you realize that you just... It's not just a matter of disagreement that you don't want to be seen with this crowd anymore. Yes. That there is something really fundamentally wrong with their their ideological makeup. And so once once that happens, you get a cascade. You feel not only willing, but a positive need to break with where you've been. And now here's the proposition that I present to you. You have burned your left wing union card. <laughs> yes, you I have. <laughs> you can't go back, but that's that's what that article, your manifesto, yes, did. You made a public declaration that identifies you with the liberal center. It doesn't mean ideological center. You know, there are lots of people there who want to look the U.S. to look a lot more like Sweden. Sure, and there are other people who want it to look more like, I don't know, the free market paradise. But that's not the kind of center I mean. I mean the people who believe in the values which you to which you ascribe. Um, the point of view that you're describing of where you've always been in terms of your your aspirations as a gay man are what my generation call assimilationist or integrationist. We had this fight in the 90s. I'm almost 30 years older than you. We thought we won it in the 90s, beating back the tide of queer activists who said, it, well, if you're gay, you have to be anti-capitalist and anti-religious, and you have to be for a woman's right to choose, and on and on. Mm. And we said, screw that. Um, we just want what every other American wants, which is our bit of the American dream and a place at a table. Bruce Bauer wrote a book called A Place at the Table. Mm. And that's always where large numbers of 
the LGBT rank and file have been and still are. Unfortunately, they're not a well-voiced majority. So your generation's task, I wish it weren't so, but Stephen, you're going to have to refight the battle that we thought we won in the 90s. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up because just yesterday I was listening to a conversation with Andrew Sullivan, who's kind of a hero of mine, because... Yep, and fought this in the 90s. And he Probably fought the leading person to do so. Yes, absolutely. Who fought and and he's he's kind of like one of the main he wrote the book Virtually Normal. He was the and he was the first one to put if I understand correctly to put forward a defense of gay marriage in like the 80s in in a major magazine. So, yeah, pioneer. just footnote it goes back to the early 50s. Um, in 1970, two gay guys went and applied for a marriage license in Minnesota. So there are precursors, but yeah, in the modern modern gay marriage movement, uh, Andrew Sullivan's role was seminal. Yeah, it's so iconic. But he was telling these stories of that landscape back in the 80s and 90s. You know, people throwing things at him at gay clubs because they saw him as some kind of traitor. And just for, you know, fighting for gay marriage and kind of fighting for the the gay liberal project, I guess you could say. So, yeah, it's interesting you bring that up and seeing the parallels between then and now. <laughs> yeah, um, it's more complicated now by the the gender queer movement. Yes. Which is not identical to trans rights. Yeah. Many trans people I know are not on board with abolishing the sex binary. Same. In fact, they embrace it. Um, mm -hmm. you know, what am I changing to, if not um, identifying with the other sex? But so that complicates it um, today compared to the 90s. Mm. But yes, there are a lot of parallels. And on those days when in this new life of yours, in this new voice that you have, as you push forward, you will often feel the task is futile because it will seem like the whole LGBTQIA plus genderqueer establishment is just firmly aligned with an ideology with which you don't agree. And it's important to remember at those moments that the general population out there of queer people, broadly defined, is not radical. They're not revolutionary. They're just undervoiced. And, and they're also victims of false representation by small all groups of advocates hmm. and activists who claim to speak in their name but really don't. So, well, I, I want to be on record as being super proud of, of what you've accomplished. I think, you know, at this point, it'll be interesting to see how you take this forward. Now that you have officially burned your leftist union card, you're stuck with the likes of us. <laughs> I have and to say, it was it was so refreshing, by the way, to write to the audience on persuasion because it was like, oh, I'm writing to a bunch of people who know exactly what I'm talking about. And that was just so refreshing. That was awesome. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we've been there. Yeah. We, we just wish, you know, we feel kind of embattled right now, us in the liberal center, not because we're underrepresented in the public, but because the Republican Party is largely under the control of a semi-fascist movement. And the cultural left is largely under the control of a neo-Marxist movement. And they're very good for each other. They bolster each other's each other's political standing mm -hmm. by providing the 
the perfect demon for the other side to fundraise against. So it can be pretty lonely where we where we are, but we do have a few advantages, and one of those is the right answer. The societies that have thrived for the past 300 years have been liberal societies. They have been places where free speech and free thought mm. and enlightenment values like science and rule of law, constitutionalism, minority rights, these things are tried and true. And you will be, I think, a fine advocate for those things. So I, I can't wait to see where you take this this new identity, if that's what it is. Thank you. Well, let's um, let's wrap. Let's I just want it. to thank you for doing this. It was kind of my idea, but I feel so privileged to have to have heard this story. And I have an ulterior motive, which is if you thought you hadn't slammed the door to the left before, well, boy, you sure have now. <laughs> True. <laughs> and that's it for our show. Shall I say my show? The theme song is Wild by Eleventy Seven, and you can find it on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you listen to music. The show is written, produced, and edited by Stephen Bradford Long and is made possible by paid subscribers at sacredtension.substack.com. Please become one. And as always, stay curious, and thanks for listening.